really finding a, a solid co-founder who's very like-minded, but different enough to cover the blind spots. So those are the couple things I wish I'd done differently because that would have helped me avoid some costly mistakes that I've made, you know, going down this road. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Our guest today is a unique founder that I first met in my days of venture capital. He hails from the Pittsburgh area with a strong passion for both education and robotics, leading him to start, well, <laughs> a robotics company with a strong ed tech component. Today, he and I are going deep on what needs to be done to scale operations at a startup, from managing people and products remotely to managing lumpy cash and inventory cycles. So CEO and founder of Digital Dream Labs, or DDL, Jacob Hanchar, welcome to The Dirt. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Yeah, happy to have you. So um, you've got quite the eclectic and non-traditional background, if you will, for a tech founder. Um, I'd love for you to tell everyone a little bit about it, but but ultimately, you know, end the story on, on how you got to start Digital Dream Labs. Sure. Uh, yes, I'll summarize it uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, try not to go too far back in the past and reminisce. Uh, essentially, I'd love to learn for the sake of learning. That's kind of how I would encapsulate my mindset uh, just in everything. So there's not a single subject I don't find you know not interesting. I think everything is interesting. And that in and of itself presents a problem because I could just go on and on forever. So focus has always been an issue uh, for me. Um, having said that, my passion growing up was in uh, learning, especially how we learn, in particular neuroscience. So I got a PhD uh, in neuroscience, in particular neuropharmacology. So essentially how drugs act on the brain. And the uh, degree I got really focused on a particular set of receptors, had a really great experience. Anyway, I got that from UCLA. Toward the end of my PhD, we did a, uh, we patented a drug that actually sobers you up after you get intoxicated. So you have a rat, like when rats get drunk, they lie on their back and they kind of put their paws in the air and they just, you know, just are just essentially knocked out. So we give a shot of this compound and boom, right away, uh, the rats are back up running around. And we found this kudzu. So there's a, a vine that grows in the South that came abroad and has basically taken over the entire South. And you boil this into a tea and believe it or not, that tea will actually get rid of your hangover and actually sober you up because it's, it, it competes against alcohol in your brain. Hmm. Anyway, the lawyers wouldn't go for it. So we went through this whole development. They're saying like, look, it could be habit forming. You get the dose wrong. Look, the blood alcohol concentration is still high. You know, it does nothing to help that. It's not life-saving. 
uh, on and on and on this list of the reasons why they weren't going to touch this thing with a 10 foot pole. However, um, after going through that entire process, I really got a taste for what they call translational medicine. So taking a product and then commercializing it. So in commercializing that, I um, really, really started uh, loving this concept of um, just taking my PhD and then doing something that would generate revenue or something like that. Because a lot of people don't realize that when you start a lab, it's like starting a company. You know, you write a grant, so that'd be like your seed money. And then eventually you start, you know, hiring people and you build out your lab and then eventually you're doing patents and then earning royalties of patents. So there's a very entrepreneurial aspect of science that I think a lot of people um, maybe don't really focus on necessarily. Anyway, having said all that, I thought, hey, I need to get another degree. So I went and I'm going to just fast forward and skip over some parts, but got, basically got my uh, MBA from Carnegie Mellon. While I was uh, going through the Carnegie Mellon uh, program, I met some engineers. So we uh, took this company called Digital Dream Labs and took it up a notch. We went and took the company uh, product, which was in development, and we took it actually to market in 2015. The product was called Puzzlets. still exists today. Uh, it's in a couple different incarnations. But that was kind of the foray, if you will, of me going into... EdTech, uh, and at the time, EdTech was really, really hot, right? Everyonecode.org, there were all these, uh, everyone needs to learn how to code. So 2015, 2016, very, very hot for that, um, uh, for just coding in general. And then we did a partnership with Wonder Workshop, which makes a, a robot called Dash. And that's whenever I started getting interested in robotics because our products would sync with theirs. So it got rid of the screen entirely. So you don't need to have uh, an iPad anymore. You'd have our product puzzlets, which uh, we call the play tray, moving around little puzzle pieces. These puzzle pieces essentially are telling the robot what to do, where to go. And parents loved it because it got rid of the iPad. And now you can do direct interface, which was fantastic for a lot of people. Um, that got me interested in robotics. So this is around 2018. And I started thinking, you know what? It'd really be great if we had our own robot versus having a partnership. Maybe we can actually start making our own robots. So just as I was thinking about that, another uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon startup called Anki, uh, they were basically going bankrupt. They went into what's called the assignment for benefit of creditors, which I call you know bankruptcy light. It's essentially kind of like a, a portion of California law that just makes a transition of assets faster. It just, you know, okay, just, okay, who gets what, whatever's left over. And uh, that's what happened. I bid and miraculously I won. Uh, and then we were able to essentially restore the platform. We restored the platform and the rest is history, as they say. And now we're in production making vector robots and it has been, uh, an adventure, to put it mildly, um, and we can, obviously can go into more detail about that. But that's what brings us to present day. Digital Dream Labs making Vector Robot first. That's the one that we've we've now restored fully to manufacturing, and then we have the other robots which are coming soon after. So that's it. Digital Dream Labs. <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks for that introduction. Sounds like more like an adventure and a half than than an adventure, <laughs> maybe yeah, even a yeah. double adventure. Mm -hmm, but, yeah. but 
you know, when, when all said and done, you've, you've, um, you've really seen a lot of evolution. We don't want to call them pivots, but, but changes in evolution in the company, right. And evolution in, in both through acquisition and organic growth. And you did that through bootstrap, correct? Pretty much. Yes. So, you know, and this is no secret. I know everyone's trying very hard in the Pittsburgh area, but you know, Pittsburgh's a capital desert in comparison to other parts of the country, right? Take a look at Boston, you take a look at Silicon Valley, of course, you take a look at other places, you know, we're missing several zeros at the end of the amount of capital that's deployed into local companies. So essentially, you are forced into running a business practically and making hard decisions and doing things that most startup companies aren't forced to do simply because you have a lot of backers backing you. And I'm very grateful. We do have investments, but compared to you know the rest of the world, it's minute. And we have to make sure that every dollar is deployed properly and that we're getting the full impact of that dollar in whatever we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the investors that we do have are very practical and Believe me, if I'm not doing something that they don't like, even though I'm the largest investor and I have the controlling stake in the company, I hear about it, which is good. You know, there's this this reinforcement of discipline, discipline, discipline. You know, we we are not uh, going out and coming up with vanity projects. We're not coming up with things that might work. Uh, we're focusing on things that kind of have to work because uh, we have no alternative. And there's been a a lot of shifts that connected to that. And one common theme that you and I have talked about is, is operations, right? And, um, and the evolution of, of what that team and the operation needs to look like. Um, what, what does operations actually mean to you and, and why is it important for the business? Yeah, and, and COVID made the whole concept of operations really weird. And it's still really weird. Um, so the, the one downside so to speak, of hardware, and there are several downsides to hardware. Uh, but the, the biggest one is the being able to touch the product, being able to actually be physically present. And you really have to have that for the team. Um, it's hard to do stuff that's armchair. Um, it's hard to do stuff. And I'm, I'm even, I'm very guilty of it. Uh, still, you know, basically telecommuting and doing a lot of, uh, let's, let's call it, um, uh, administrative, let's just say in generic term, let's just say it's administrative work. Uh, but at the same time, really the real work and the real things that need to have happen have to occur in person. Mm-hmm. And that was killing us because just as I had taken over, um, you know, the Anki assets and got the IP and we were gearing up to maybe, you know, launch in a factory COVID hit. And all the everyone just locked their doors and hunkered down and, and basically acted like it was the end of the world. And you couldn't get someone on the phone over over in China. You just couldn't get you couldn't get in touch with anyone. And then, of course, getting back to the rhythm of things, getting um, uh, you know momentum back, cutting new tooling because we had to start. A lot, a lot of people came. We didn't do an acquisition of the full company. Man, I wish that had been the case, right? That, in hindsight, had been much better. And I think the people who were selling the asset probably regret that too. But 
we had to start all over. So we had to cut new tooling, even though we had all the same plans, we had to re-verify all the plans, uh, all the all of the, the bill of materials, the, the lists for equipment, on and on and on and on and on. We had to go back and make sure that we re-engineered essentially 99.9999% of everything. And it was rough. Um, and, and that's that disconnect we couldn't even go to visit and talk to uh, the people in China. Um, so you have this, it slowed us down dramatically because a conversation in person uh, can happen. Like it was, you know, you and I were talking about my quick trip to, to LA and, and uh, San Diego just last week. I got so much done in 10 minutes, right. Versus it would maybe have taken a week or two back and forth exchanging emails or even Zoom that doesn't really get everything you need to have happen. Uh, you know, this you have this organic uh, development of a discussion, right? And you kind of advance a topic. And as you're advancing that topic, you just get so much more done um, in, in person. So long story short, it's there was a whole other operations model you had to adopt, which I did not enjoy, where you have to be far away and then try to do things um, uh, remotely. And as you and I were discussing briefly is it's already lonely being an entrepreneur, right? And now you're isolated. It's even more lonely. Uh, some of the happiest moments I have are when I'm with uh, everyone, like the rest of the team at the office and we're generating ideas and having a good time and laughing uh, outside of that. Sometimes it's just misery. So yeah, totally shit, huge shift in 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 operations and then operational style for sure. Any tips that that you can give other folks that may not have had as easy of a transition as you have yet or may have not even, you know, had that transition happen yet for one reason or another. Um, you know, whether it's around managing teams remotely or uh, product builds remotely, manufacture any anything anything that you can give to those that are probably on the front end of your journey. Yeah, um, I would say don't be afraid to micromanage. Um, one thing I look back and I regret is that I was delegating a lot. Um, and when you have th- this disruption, we call it, let's say this black swan event or whatever um, you you need to be more hands-on and be much more alert to what's going on. Uh, The biggest mistake I was doing, I was assigning tasks and then just kind of like, okay, that's good over there. I'm going to go focus over here now. And and rather than uh, rather than actually driving things forward, I really believe I was being too aloof, and uh, I just just getting this. There were also competing ideas and competing thoughts and competing because at the end of the day, that you talk you talk about company culture and things like that. Uh, but but when you're this small, essentially the person, the entrepreneur, is the company culture. At least maybe eighty percent of it. So you know, it's your actions and, and what you're doing. You could talk about like, you know, all of these things on a diagram all you want all day long. Uh, but essentially you're the one driving the company. And, and if you're in a bad mood, then probably everybody else is going to be in a bad mood. If you're in a good mood, you know, everyone else. So the, your behavior and the things that you're doing on a daily basis rub off dramatically on the rest of the other team. So 
you have to you have to be present. And I think where we got things better on a better cadence is I am on every single call now, whether I'm in the office or not. I am uh, talking to everybody constantly inside the team. Uh, and then also the other thing, um, at least from my experience, you know, the, the, the role of a CEO is to be also the chief salesperson and also the chief marketer. And again, if you do not, if you don't have that philosophy, that's fine. But if you do have that philosophy, make 100% certain that you're driving that forward and you're not delegating that to anybody. Be Otherwise, you're going to get a fracture and you'll, you're kind of like you'll have your company fight itself. And then what will end up happening is you, you'll, you'll suffer revenue losses as a result of that. So the key, th- the key thing is, is alignment um, of everybody at the same time. And in order to do that, you really need to spell it out. And, and I, you know, it feels like micromanaging, but I, you got to do it. Um, you, you, you can't delegate in times like that. Again, it's from my personal experience. Other people have maybe uh, done it differently, um, but that's, that would be my recommendation. So just to pull a couple nuggets out, because I think this is a really good conversation topic. And we've had the other side of this from at least one guest in the past who had some really tough lessons learned from micromanaging too much. Right. Um, I think one of the things you're saying is find a balance to build a high performing remote team, which, um, you know, may may not be full autonomy, (laughs) which is which is what you started with. It may be a little bit more of a balance to which for your company, you've actually found it pretty heavily on the micromanagement side that needs to happen to get that performance, which, you know, is, is, is different. Do you mind just giving like an example of that? Cause, cause I think it's, um, you know, when you hear two sides of the same coin, right. You, uh, you try to figure out what's right for my company. And we've heard the, you know, all the reasons why micromanaging can, can fail, but you just talk through at least one or two examples of, of where it's really helped you in your business. Yeah. So, so in most cases, and this is where I've come from in the past, uh, you know, micromanaging can be a real morale buster. I mean, real morale buster, because then you're like, why do I even exist at this company? Uh, if I'm being told what to do, what I can't make my own decisions. And then same thing from the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur's perspective, they're going like, well, then why, why do I even have this person hired if I need to tell them every single thing that they need to do that, you know, one of us is redundant here. So there's definitely that portion. So we're training a lot of people. All right. We're, we're training tons of people. Um, and for us, it's tons. I mean, it's like a dozen or two. It's, we're not like GE or something like that. But let's say, let's say, let's say we have 10 people we're training. Okay. So there's a reimbursement program, which is fantastic, by the way. I recommend everyone take a look at it. So there's a, a training um, reimbursement, and we get it through CCAC. Um, so, and it's, you can, I think from the state, you can get up to $75,000 a year if you're training people. Um, so, for example, I, I took a class, and a couple other people in the company took a class so we can ship batteries. Okay. And so now we can ship lithium batteries. Okay. And that's important, right, for us. So because we're shipping all the time. And rather than find a outsourced company, sometimes it's just better if we just ship the box ourselves and call it a day. 
Okay, great. Um, so let's say there's another thing, uh, a circuit board. Someone needs to learn how to solder a circuit board. The biggest mistake in what I did when I expected other employees to do this is that I didn't fully train them on how, how to really get it done and then didn't really follow up. So what I should have done is for the first couple really made sure that they understood absolutely everything and really breathed over their shoulder to make certain that, you know, they're doing it correctly. Cause what ended up happening is I thought, Oh, they'll figure it out. You know, I'm delegating. Right. So here it is. Here's the opportunity. It's straightforward. And then follow up a couple, you know, a week or two later, wait, this was done incorrectly or what, or what, and what I've discovered happens in when people, when you delegate to people, but you uh, aren't clear about the expectations, they will freeze because mm-hmm. they're terrified of making a mistake. And you can tell everybody inside your company and say your culture, like it's okay to make mistakes or stuff like that. It's human nature just to, because we're ingrained, like, you know, from being kids, like, oh my God, I don't want to make a mistake. If you want to find more of a balance of micromanaging, like really, really train that person excessively, mm-hmm. monitor the person a couple of weeks afterwards to make certain that they've gotten a couple of runs of this. And then finally get it done because there's some paperwork, believe it or not, has been hanging out there now. And I didn't know about it. So it's been hanging out there, let's say, for six months. And what ended up happening is what ends up happening with an employee is they let it drag out, right? Then they haven't done it. Then they start covering it up because now they know they're in trouble. <laughs> so so that's that's the thing is now they're in trouble. Now they're just, all, I would say, almost like outright lying that they did it and they didn't do it. And then they start blaming the other person. So by the time you come in, you have no idea what's happened. And so to a certain extent, micromanagement is kind of helpful too. It, it, the person feels more comfortable and secure because now you've taken the time and you've really, really focused on uh, getting that person up to snuff. Now you could say, well, well, that's just basic, good, you know, training, like it's just training that should have happened in the first place. But I, I, you know, some of these things that you take a look at, you look at it and like, there shouldn't be any training, you know, like you shouldn't have to be trained for this. You shouldn't have to be trained for that. You should just get it, but not everybody understands everything the same way. So automatically assume the person needs to be trained. It doesn't matter how simple of a task it is, just make certain and then really overtrain that person, I would say, and then follow up. So that to me, some people will look at that as like, that's that's micromanaging. Um, but I look at that as just, you know, stronger management and the opposite is weak management. So that to me is one clear example and uh, where we really, I needed to be more on, quote unquote, on top of the employees uh, than I was. Uh, and, and again, that came from like a, a training perspective and a follow-up perspective. You know, that's an, that's an excellent example, right? Because, you know, whether we use the term micromanagement or, or really what I think you're getting at is the right kind of management for the right job, right? It's we, we as entrepreneurs assume that people know what we know, but in reality, almost nobody knows what we know. 90% of what you know is 90% of what another person doesn't know. Um, and that's just taking a round number, but you, you know, that you get the point. And I've run into that trap so many times where I'm like, you know, go be me, right? <laughs> here's the role, here's everything you need, go do it. And and it fails every time, right? Because because someone you bring on is not gonna be you. They're not gonna sell like you, they're not going to market the company like you. And and you've got to give them, whether it's a 
standard operating procedure like you talked about or you know heavy training like you talked about there's got to be a a role there's got to be the process around the role and then there's got to be management around the role whatever that level of autonomy is for that role it's really just about managing at the end of the day right and i think um so many entrepreneurs are so focused on leading that that they forget to manage and the, or that they think they might not have to cuz someone should know what they know and i think that's what you're really getting at right is the heart of let hard lessons learned in in just knowing that you need to manage people well and there's also another hair to split that i'll mention there's a difference between finding resources and leadership Mm-hmm. So for the longest time, I thought by bringing in resources, and I still suffer from this and I'm trying to improve, but okay, I brought in resources into the company. Let's say I closed the deal. I got this. I got that. Okay. Ha, I did my job. That's not really leadership. Um, you know, finding resource, but it feels like it, right? Like, oh, I just, okay, I closed the deal. I brought in orders. I did this. Um it's not the same as making a tough decision inside the company or, you know, telling someone they're fired or saying, Hey guys, you need to step it up over here or whatever. Um, And that's, that's a real difference that I'm still wrestling with today, just because you're able to get resources into the company, just because you're able to accomplish something um, that is critical and good for the company that does not translate into taking the company and everyone's experience to the next level. It, it doesn't always translate. And that's another thing um, that I continue to wrestle with because leadership is, it's, I'm sorry, it's subtle. There are all these books on it. There's all of this these studies and countless stuff. And I guess maybe that's why there is so much because no one really knows what it is at the end of the day. Uh, but the, there's this, it's more than just, you know, hey, coach, give me the ball at the last second. It's more than just, um, it's more than just showing up every day and, you know, putting in the effort or things like that. It's, it's, it's so multifaceted uh, that it can't, it, you can't really boil it down into just one thing. Uh, it's, it's definitely a process and everyone has their style. And the other thing too one person will say that person is a great leader and the other person will say that person is a terrible leader. And what's funny is leadership's a two-way street. That's the other thing I've found. Some, you know, a person, one person finds their leader like, oh, you're a great leader. I think you're fantastic. Other person's like, you suck. You know, I'm like, and, and the thing is, is that the employee's not getting out of you what you need to get, they need to get out of you. And you're not giving them what they need. And maybe maybe both are incapable. That's the other thing, too, is at a certain point, you just have to have the team where you jive and you really can't worry about, uh, you know, do I need to coach you more? Do you get it? Do you know, do I do I need to, again, for the hundredth time, try to try to impart what I'm trying to say to you after a while, I think. Both sides need to weed themselves out. Uh, just say, like, look, his leadership style, her leadership style. I just, I just don't like it. I don't, you know, they're a good person and all that stuff, but I don't really like what they're doing. And the, and the, and the leader at the same time is like, look, you know, I can't, I, I'm, I cannot revise my brain sufficiently enough to be able to accommodate this person. And you see that all the time, you know, with these sometimes these tweets that are from some of these, you know, big time CEOs and they're talking about 
this, that, or the other thing. And you go, Whoa, you know, you know, some people are like, oh, I would never work there in a hundred years. And, but then another person's like, yeah, there are glorious leaders. So there's this, there, there is this personality uh, too, where things like the socks have to match mm-hmm. uh, to, to certain uh, organizations. And, and that's, that's the, getting back to, you know, 80% of the culture is probably the leader. So that's, again, that's, you know, where things kind of gel, if you will, at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and hiring and, and firing and motivating in a consistent manner across it. Right. I mean, cause that's, that's really what it is at the end of the day. Not every person is a good fit for every company um, or even the same role in every company. Right. It's, it's got to jive. It's got to mold and, and one thing that I see people doing all the time as it relates to their operations is hiring fast and firing slow, when in reality it has to be, you know, it hire slow and fire fast, um, in at least in a startup mm-hmm. environment. Have, have you experienced any any uh you know lessons learned, we'll call them, along that same route around, you know, hiring and firing and, and building of your team? Yeah. Um for sure. I think every entrepreneur has, and, and I've, I've subscribed to that model, you know, hire slow, fire fast, but even then, um, and this is a weakness. This is the other thing. If in hindsight, what I should have done is, okay, I'm going to go find, you know, the preeminent, at least the t- in, someone in the top 10, quote unquote, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, roboticists in the United States or, you know, academics or some, something like that. And I'm going to bring that person in as an advisor. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And then, okay, I'm going to go find a technologist and I'm going to go find that person. So those two things I should have done immediately uh, to kind of cover for a lot, because I would have saved lots of money and mistakes, right? Because I've made mistakes in hardware I made mistakes in logistics and actually hardware and logistics are probably the two areas that made the most amount of mistakes. And that probably would have diminished some of that. Um, So, and then also pulling in a quote unquote, a true co-founder, really bringing that person in who's in the same bracket as you, whether it's mindset, lifestyle, position in life, you name it, right? Like, because if you don't, if you have someone who has different life experiences or has it's a completely different mindset. Now I'm not saying like, go find a yes person, right. To just always, you know, agree on everything, but at least because I've seen this in other companies where you have one founder, say it's a a single person, hundred percent career driven, boom, you know, they're going to, they're going to do no matter, they're going to get it done no matter what. And then you have another person who's like, okay, the career is not number one for them. Right. Uh, you know, they have other obligations and they make room for those obligations. Or let's say they don't have a spouse that supports them or, you know, on and on and on. You can think of all these things, you, uh, really finding a, a solid uh, co-founder who's very like-minded, but different enough to cover the blind spots. So those are the couple things I wish I'd done differently because that would have helped me avoid some costly mistakes that I've made, you know, going down this road, uh, for sure. Yeah, no, well, well said. I mean, and partnerships bring their own challenges, right? Um, co-founder partnership, however you want to look at it. But if you find the right person to augment yourself with, and, and to your point, you've got similar life positions, which I think is something so many 
people miss when they're looking at a co-founder, right? They they select someone who just had a family and is building their family and they're maybe later in their stage or earlier in their stage where they're grinding at a different level. It's immediate expectations that are unmatched. Um, and, and that could have been figured out before you even got started. Um, and so taking the time to make sure that not just business goals, but life goals are connected to the conversation because we're humans after all, mm-hmm. is that that's a really good point, Jacob, that a lot of founders, that a lot of founders miss. Um, you know, you mentioned a couple things around logistics and I, you know, uh, in my intro of you, I mentioned the inventory management and, and lumpy cash cycles that, that, you know, we've talked about before and how that can get in the way of scale and financial management. Um, how have you been able to push through some of those challenges and, and what were those challenges around yeah, inventory and cash? Yeah. And literally push through is what we had to do. <laughs> um, I mean, so when we took over and then we started resurrecting manufacturing, uh, you know, no one wanted to take a risk on us. Nobody. Um, uh, the old manufacturers from the old Anki days, they didn't want to touch us. Um, even though I was going to offer that, you know, I offered all kinds of what I thought were sweetheart deals and surely we'd get this done and no problem. Um, but no, uh, we had to do everything ourselves and so that tied up a ton of cash. I mean, lots and lots of cash. And then obviously with production delays and things like that, we're sitting on all this inventory and we're, we're bleeding to death. And the thing is, is that, you know, we had this massive surge of interest, like demand to this day is not a problem for us. It's really supply and really trying to meet that demand and, find the components and, you know, get everything built. And I mean, on and on and on when it comes to, uh, you know, manufacturing. Now, I think finally, we're at a level where we're happy and things are moving forward. And we've, we've really been, um, you know, fortunate that we, that we have survived this really nasty downturn. This, uh, so, I mean, and you take a look at it, it's actually been a blessing because we went and we secured a lot of these components. That's how long we've been sitting on them. Mm-hmm. We secured these components uh, a year before this huge wave of inflation. And we're stuck in this very ironic spot right now where usually if you do things in bigger batches, the prices go down. Uh, but that's not the case at the moment. Actually, because you're on the spot market and you're scrambling to find basically any part you can think of, the costs go, our costs are going up by in making more. It's really weird. And that's another thing we've had to wrestle with is like, okay, maybe we, maybe we defer this next round of manufacturing until next year. So that way we're not upside down because then, then it becomes a question of like, okay, do we are, but then, okay, well, maybe we're not going to hit as much revenue, you know? Um, so then it comes down to do, you, do we want to be profitable or do we want to show growth? And then you start getting this really hard question where it's really in your face. You're like, okay, um, yeah, okay, we'll buy these components. That's going to drive up our cost of goods. Uh, 
That means our margins are going to be much more narrow. That means we're going to probably lose money, but you know, we'll, we'll show growth. We'll show, you know, we'll, you know, we'll get it, you know, we'll, we'll cross the threshold into eight figures and beyond. We'll get way, you know, much higher than we were hoping for this year. We can revise our numbers upwards. Okay, great. Uh, but then you're sacrificing profitability and then you're thinking, okay, if we're sacrificing profitability, where's that money? Where's that shortfall going to come from? You know, uh, you know, are the investors going to stick with you or not? Uh, are you going to be able to do a, a, a raise where, you know, you get another um, X number of, you know, for your tranche, right? So again, it's it, it gets tricky. What we've been trying to do is try to operate as lean as possible and really only sell in channels that make sense. I've really been focusing on developing our e-commerce. At least we have control over there and really focusing on areas, control, control, control. Uh, and then that way I can at least get some kind of like, I can at least tell myself, okay, look, we are, we are strong here. Therefore I can build defenses if we run into troubles later on. So that's, that's kind of what we've been doing, doing a, like a layered approach and being very pragmatic about things we have control over and uh, making sure we have uh, the right relationships in place where we're deep making a decent margin off of our product. Some great tips in there. That's, that's awesome. And, and I'm uh not sure if I'm allowed to share this. We might have to delete it if I'm not, but I believe you're considering taking on some some financing and investment to scale operations either even further than you guys have to date. Is that correct? Yeah. So we're considering a series A. We've been looking at either, you know, there's always the concept of IPO, hmm. but there's all kinds of SPACs right now. Like it's, it's a weird time in the market because you have... Last year, there were a lot of companies that were our size going public. Um, and I really strongly considered it. In hindsight, I'm glad we didn't because we missed a couple of our milestones due to the production delays. And the market would just eaten us alive. They just would have just hammered us so hard. It would have been ugly. So kind of dodged a bullet there. Now we have all these SPACs, which these special purpose vehicles, right, that are running out of time and they need to find somebody or else they're going to forfeit a lot of the money and the time and the infrastructure they put together to take these companies, these shell companies, basically, on NASDAQ. I'm oversimplifying, but let's just, you know, use use it that way. So I have a lot of people knocking on our door now saying, hey, the clock is running out on our SPAC. Could you guys get involved with us somehow? So we're having those discussions as well. I think at the end of the day, it makes the most amount of sense to keep the company private, to maybe have to put together some kind of series A. We've been basically just stitching everything together through angel investors uh, and, and through some local uh, local funds that uh, are really like what we're working on. Uh, but we have no formal venture uh, involvement whatsoever. It would be great to have an institutional investor come in and really kind of like solidify our position in the market. I just don't see that happening in the near future until we've really proven ourselves more. We have had plenty of people, again, who've like stepped forward and said, look, uh, we'll participate in a, in a round. I'm like, okay, will you lead? And everyone's like, no, 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 right? Because leading a round is very different than participating in one. And a lot of people do not want the underwriting risk 
uh, with taking a, uh, a company and doing all the due diligence and, and, and taking the blame if it goes sideways. And the weird position that we're, that we're in, you know, the company before us went bankrupt. So immediately everyone's like, well, you know, what makes you so much smarter? What makes you so much better than the previous people? Because these people who were doing this, they're pretty smart. They're pretty sophisticated. They were pretty with it. Like, you know, how are you going to be better than them? And, you know, the answer to that question is just that we're in a different time at this point where I can generate more revenue streams than, than they could. Mm-hmm. So versus just, you know, a 30% margin on every product. I mean, our margins are much healthier than that now, thankfully. But, you know, we have a cartoon of the Cosmo and Friends on YouTube that's generating revenue. So not only is it an advertising vehicle, it's also generating revenue. It's a 50-50% net revenue deal, which is fantastic. So our ad is making money through ads for other ads. It's fantastic. It's a great business great model. model. Yeah. yeah. So so we have that licensing, right? And then we also have the ability of um, the other uh, assets that we have. You know, other companies are interested in licensing our IP. It does this, does that, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we have our IP assets that we're licensing to as a second revenue stream. And the third revenue stream, the one that's probably the most attractive and that really has helped us get through the lean times, is this subscription model. Now where we have a robot and we're kind of treating it like a cell phone. And really, that's where I see this company going. That's where I see our products going. I see us as a company just going in general is that we are going to turn into your basic cell phone model where you have a two to three year contract, you sign up, you don't really worry about the cost of the device. And then, you know, you have your pet robot wherever you want to go. And we're eventually going to put an antenna in that and they're all, it'll always be connected. So you'll always have this robot at your disposal and it'll behave really like a companion. You don't have to shut it off. You don't have to have it go back to the charger. You can really keep it around. So it's that, that constant robotic companion, I think, that's going to generate um, a lot of interest, a lot of revenue, but also just change the way we think of robotics. That you're going to always have... You're not going to go home and just play with the thing and then let it sit on the shelf for half an hour or, you know, or just leave it on the shelf for, let's say, 30 days or, you know, for forever. Uh, you'll carry this around maybe in, in, in your purse. It's your little robotic pet. So um, I see that really changing in, in just as us as in behavior, just in general, as a species, as we're interacting with uh, robots. So. That I think we're on the vanguard of that. We're on the, we're on the forefront of that development, and it's a result of that subscription model. And again, we would not have come up with that if we hadn't had the need. So we have these three uh, revenue models now that bring in more uh, money into the business that make us much more attractive from a from an investment standpoint, but just from a company stability standpoint as well. Yeah, I mean that, the vision's incredible. The execution has been pretty awesome to, to watch you over the years and and now see what you guys are doing and getting to this point. And well, as, as you're looking and you figure out what you're going to do on the financing side, let's talk further on that because we'd definitely love to continue that conversation. And this time of the show, we like to do what's called a founder five, Jacob, which listeners know it's just five rapid fire questions, really ties us off nicely at the end, all around growth. Let's aim for under a minute total and see where we get. Sound like a good deal? All right, let's do it. All right. So number one, number one metric or KPI that you're relentlessly focused on? 
uh, engagements, monthly engagement of users. Yep. MAU. Yep. Nice monthly active users for you guys. Uh, yep. t- top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. Tenacity. Nice. Just you can't you can't give up. Even if you want to give up, don't give up. Not a yellow brick road, guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, favorite book or podcast that's helped you grow? Uh, favorite book. I would say let's, because it hasn't changed for so long. Think and grow. Think and grow rich. Think and grow rich. It, like I, I'm so I'm sorry. Like I'm all the self help books and everything uh, up to this point are just, in my opinion, are derivations off of that book. Like Think and Grow Rich. It's like, that's that's the book. And everyone else who's written stuff subsequently have just expounded upon various aspects of that book. That's so. great. We'll, uh, we'll make sure to get these links added to the, to the show notes as well. What actor would play you in a movie? Um, well, so everyone thinks I, well, especially when I was younger and I had a little bit more hair, people uh, thought I looked a lot like uh, Frazier, the guy who played Frazier. So, um, Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, <laughs> uh, what, and finally, uh, what is going to be the title of your autobiography? That's blood and education. I would say, yeah. The, the mixture of fighting and intellect or Jekyll and Hyde. Like I, I really, think of Jekyll and Hyde very differently now than I ever did before. There's this concept of having to have savagery along with intellect because both by themselves are not enough. But man, if you're a monster and you're able to have the intellect to control that monster, you're unstoppable. So I really, I th- I really think of it that way. Yeah. I love that. It says a lot about you too, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, You've given a ton to the listeners today, Jacob. So I always uh, like to allow for a little self-promotion at the end of the show. How can how can those listening help you out? So, yeah, reciprocity is the key to all friendships, right? Yeah. I, I So definitely like and subscribe, Cosmo and Friends. Go take a look. Just like and subscribe. And it's free. Just take a look at it. Tell your friends and family about Cosmo and Friends, two years old and up. I mean, it's meant for eight years old, but my my young kid loves it. So uh, it goes the whole way up to 14, I would say, before it's not cool anymore. So, <laughs> so yeah, like and subscribe, Cosmo and Friends. Take a look at digitaldreamlabs.com, you know, www.digitaldreamlabs.com. And I am barred from making any kind of solicitation of investment. So I, you know, I'm not allowed to do that. So can't do that here, but just take a look at uh, what we're working on. And if you're interested, just, you know, drop us a line. Awesome. Love it. All right, Jacob. Thanks again, man. This has been a, a journey and just tying us off. How, how might people be able to get in touch with you if they do have an ability to help you out? So we have a really great support team. They're basically working almost 24-7. So support at digitaldreamlabs.com and then put in the subject line Jacob or put me in touch with Jacob. It'll find me. Believe me. Just yeah, just email support at digitaldreamlabs.com. There you go. Yep. Delegation at its finest. Yeah. All right, man. There you go. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks a bunch, Jacob. All right. Thank you. Bye. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.